Hey guys, this is Gene Kissinger from Redeeming the Time Brothers podcast. This is podcast number 500. I would like to ask you to help us share the faith with those around you. Please like, comment, share, rate, review, and help our podcast get more exposure. We put in a tremendous amount of work on the podcast, and it's our desire to allow it to reach as many people as possible. And this is a way you can plant seeds of salvation in the lives of your friends and family members. It can help new Christians grow. It can help old Christians require acquire the fire. It, it, it can be an evangelistic tool. So please help us. Listen to these. Like, share, comment rate review it really helps us be able to reach more people god bless you looking forward to the next 500 eight the thessalonians this is probably one of the earliest letters that paul would write if it's not the first it's very close to the first and it's fascinating that in this amazing book, each of the chapters ends with a, a, a speaking about the second coming of Christ. And so it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus coming back for his children. I want to look at the first of those in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for a son from heaven, whom he hath raised from the dead, even Jesus, which hath delivered us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, I do thank you for this day, and I thank you for this encouraging word that you have delivered your church from the wrath to come. I thank you that your work on the cross liberated us, set us free, and allowed us, God, to move into realms of victorious proclamation of your word. Forgive us, God, for the times that we have been a silent witness. Help us, God, to speak out loud and long about your work on the cross and what it has done for us and what it will do for others. Give us a sense of your presence today. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1994, a man named Alvin Strait had a problem. He was an older man, failing eyesight, failing health. His brother, Henry, had had a stroke. His brother lived states away from him, but he couldn't drive there. So what Alvin did was he got on his John Deere lawn tractor and started to drive to where his brother was. His brother, uh, Alvin lived in, uh, in Iowa. His brother lived in Green uh, Blue River, Wisconsin. And so he was going to make this trip. It would take him six weeks to get there. He would be driving at five miles an hour. He brought camping equipment with him so that he'd camp along the way. His, his lawn tractor broke down twice. He had to, one time he had to wait for a social security check to be deposited so that he could then fix the lawn tractor and finish the journey. He made the journey and he was able to see his brother. The good news was after he visited with his brother for a time, his nephew loaded the tractor and truck and drove him on the right way, but he made that trip. He was willing to do whatever it took to see his brother. The question that came to me as I thought about this particular incident is what are we willing to do? What second mile activity are we willing to do to see our friends, our friends, relatives, associates, and neighbors, what are we willing to do to see them say? What are we willing to do in evangelism in order to reach them? I'm convinced that we are very close to the end of time. I'm convinced that we're close to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I know we must not set dates. That, that is unacceptable. Jesus made that very clear. 
that we are not to do that. But I do sense that the time is rapidly approaching for the second coming of Jesus Christ. I think you're seeing sort of prophetic things fulfilled that make me want to get ready and get ready fast. But not just me. I've got friends and family members that don't know Jesus. It's unacceptable if I go to heaven and I haven't told them about Jesus. How do we develop a first century passion to win the lost? These, for them, it sounded out, it trumpeted out. We'll get to that in a moment. But we need to be about the business of proclaiming the word of God. Now, the first mile of evangelism is the proclamation of the word of God with our lips. And that's a good thing. We, we must never lose the proclamation with our lips. But let me suggest a second mile of evangelism that makes it infinitely more impactful. Number one is this. It's a patterned proclamation. In other words... Our lifestyle and our lips are preaching the same message, and when that is happening, our gospel presentation is so powerful. It has exponential power, like a chain reaction, so that not just one person gets saved, but scores of people get saved. And you begin to see a birthing of a revival in a local church, the birthing of a revival in a community, in a country. You see radical things happen when a pattern Proclamation. Now, how does a pattern proclamation happen? It started with one person. The Apostle Paul had a vision in the middle of the book of Acts about a Macedonian man waving for him to come over there. Paul would go to Philippi where he would be severely mistreated because he delivered a demon-possessed girl from demon possession. And as a special reward for that, the civil officials stripped him of his clothes, beat him, put him and his companion in a in the innermost part of the prison god breaks them out with an earthquake they're singing praises to god at midnight they're busted out the jailer gets saved his entire family is baptized his sphere of influence is brought to christ they leave there they go to thessalonica in thessalonica they're there for approximately three sabbaths and they're preaching about the second coming of Jesus. It's so intense and so impactful. But he has to write 2 Thessalonians because some of them quit their jobs. They're waiting for Jesus to come back right now. They're like, I'm not going to work tomorrow if Jesus is coming back today. Uh, you know, and so he has to kind of correct them and, and calm them down. Vance Abner used to say he'd much rather calm down, cool down a fanatic than warm up a corpse. And I agree with him on that. So Paul had to kind of notch them back a little bit. But eventually, he kind of got them sort of structured where they were supposed to be. But here, they are so effective that he says that, the, that they need not to say anything. In fact, if you go up to, um, you up to verse 5, he says, For a gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. And in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And he became followers of us and of the Lord. And uh, of the Lord having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that you were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. And so they followed. So Paul came in. He patterned what Christianity looked like, and he proclaimed it. And then the local leadership there patterned Christianity and proclaimed it. And this whole church took off with it. They started, they started telling everybody in Macedonia, so that when Paul goes to the other places, they'd already heard about the Thessalonican uh, uh, experience that was there. And, and so Paul's preaching was easy in the other places because some pre-work had been done by the lives and lips 
of the Thessalonians. So how do we develop a patterned proclamation? One is that they they did this in the midst of affliction and persecution. And you need to sometimes sometimes we think, well, yeah, if we just had right. everything going our way from the government and yeah. everything, and we had just smooth sailing, boy, the church would really grow. Huh. I'm going to tell you something. In the first three centuries of church history, the church experienced the greatest growth that it ever did. And there were ten official government-sponsored persecutions of Christians during that time. Now, there were other smaller ones and pockets of them besides those ten official government-sponsored persecutions. The church has always grown exponentially when she has been afflicted by the world around her. I don't know why, but I'm telling you that's the case. And so these Thessalonians have said, you, you have received affliction, persecution, and yet in spite of this endemic uh, persecution that was all around them, and even epidemic persecution that would grow to the point of even a holocaust at various times within human history, you have these individuals that are trumpeting out the word of God no matter what the world does. These are individuals like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They won't budge, bend, or burn. They are going to proclaim the name of Jesus no matter what happens. They're like the early apostles in Jerusalem where, where the, the, the chief priests and others, the Sanhedrin, would gather them up beat the stuffing out of them, and then put them back on the street, tell them not to preach anymore. And as soon as they got out on the sidewalk, well, they didn't really have sidewalks, but as soon as they got outside, they were teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus. They did not, that they would not shut up. They would not stand down. They would not back up. They were determined to reach their world with the gospel good news of Jesus Christ. And somehow, in the modern church, it's like trying to wake the dead. We, that's unacceptable. We've got to spring into action. We only have a short time. And how did they, they, what were they facing? Because you think, well, you know, they're, they live in a different world. It was better. No. They were facing raw paganism. And we'll get into what that looked like in a little bit. They were facing Greek intellectualism, the snobbery of the Greeks and their highfalutin. Have you ever read some uh, some philosophy that's out there in the world? They're like asking questions about, you know, like this, what what is the sound of one hand clapping or some kind of nonsense? And and it, you know, and so if you're not there to see a thing happen, does it really happen? I'm like, what is wrong with you people, man? That's the dumbest stuff I've ever heard. So so these guys, they they, they were having to listen to all this babble coming out of the Greeks. They were having to see the raw paganism around them, where they were worshiping all, all kinds of false gods, all kinds of horrific uh, worship systems that were out there. They had the Roman totalitarianism. You've heard of Pax Romana, right? The Roman peace. Uh, what the Roman peace was, if you if you make us mad, we'll kill you. So you will you will calm down, you will settle down, and you won't ever raise up against us. And uh, when I was in Israel, we went to Masada. It's a hilltop fortress that Herod had used, a, a palace that he had there. It's very close to the Dead Sea. And from this hilltop palace, you can look out over this barren landscape, and there is a ramp. That comes up to it. Now we rode on a we rode on a like a cable car that took us up. But the Romans built a ramp up to Masada because the Aseans had rebelled. The, the Jews had rebelled against Rome. And when you rebel against Rome, how they fix that is they come and kill you and everybody you know. And so they they took this hilltop fortress 
and uh, and the, the Israeli children, they go to Masada. They make a yearly trip to Masada. It's kind of like our Alamo, where remember, you fight and you don't give up. It's kind of a touchstone for them. So we watched... We watched classes walk by with armed guards for every class that walked by up there. And, and that they, the, the guy told us about that ramp. The Romans, they couldn't easily get up to them. So the Romans built an earth ramp to get up to them to kill them. They committed suicide before the Romans got there. But that's what the Romans were doing. And that's how they kept this Roman peace. It was a totalitarianism like you've never experienced before. And they, in the middle of that mess... And the, the intolerance of the Jewish community. If you became a Christian in a Jewish family, they would have a funeral for you because you were dead to them. You see, so they'd lost their families. They, they, they had no government they could turn to. In fact, the government would easily turn against them. They had all kinds of false religious and false philosophical systems, and yet they still trumpeted abroad the gospel in a power, powerful, profound way. I do talk Amen. fast. I can't help it. I, 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 my mom claims I came out of the room talking. That doesn't seem possible, but she said that. I don't know. Um, second mile of engine, what does that look like? Um, he says, so from so so that you were in samples to all the believe in Macedonia. And okay, this word in samples or examples is, is tupos, and, and we get our word types from it. Um, it was used, it was used in the gospels of the nail prints in Christ's hand. And feet where the where the model of the, the nail was in his hand, it was proof positive to Timothy, the doubter, that he really was the resurrected Lord, those nail prints, the spear in his side, and, and in his feet. It, it was two posts. And, and, but it really has to do with a, a model or a pattern. And they, they fleshed out what Christianity looked like in the real world, in their real lives. So that Christianity wasn't a mere creedal belief system. It was something that impacted how a husband would treat a wife or a father would treat a child or an employee would treat – an owner would treat a slave or an employee an employer. It, it affected everything. And as a result of that, everybody that saw what was going on, they were, they were gobsmacked by it. I mean they, they saw licentious party boys and girls go from being polluted to being pure. That they saw individuals that lied and were dishonest becoming honest and trustworthy. They saw cruel people becoming kind. They literally watched a metamorphosis that is as supernatural as a caterpillar coming out of butterfly. Amen. But how does God do that? I don't know. But what I also is beyond my ability to fathom is the profound change that God can bring about in an individual human heart who's got all kinds of habits, hurts, and hang-ups. And God transforms them into something new where old things are passed away and all things are become new. And when they saw that, they went, whoa, we need, we need to get some of that. that that's real. And, and so what I'm saying is that you and I, if we're going to have a second mile evangelism where we do what it takes to reach the lost in our communities, in our families, our schools, our work world, we have got to be fleshing out the gospel we're talking about. Our lifestyle and our lips have got to match up. They need to see a model of it. My, I, I work as the head custodian of the Jerome Middle School, and uh, I'm not very far across from my office is the special needs class that's there. And they have a special part in my heart because I've had, I have special needs kids. And, and Mr. Harper, who teaches it, he's giving them some experiences 
that they really, even the other kids in the school don't get. He's got a 3D printer, and he's working with them. They can take a picture of themselves, and then they can put it in a specific program, and it prints out a 3D type of their faces. These kids can see their face in three dimensions and look at it. And you should see their faces when they see that. They're like, wow! You know what I mean? They're, they're, so, they're so excited by that. And, and if we can let the, the, the image of Christ come out in, in three-dimensionality and it's the life of Christ come out in, in 8K resolution and in 4,000 colors. I mean, if we can let that happen, I think the church can grow exponentially. But until then, it's just people making a bunch of noise. Amen. You know, we've got to do better. We have to do better. Amen. They were triumphing over temptation. Their characters were transformed. They were undetoured by the persecution that was around them. They... They were like the ever-ready bunny. They just kept going and going and going. They didn't stop. They didn't give up. This second mile evangelism is not only exemplary, it, it is uh, evangelistic. It says, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord in every place. It means trumpeted. It's only used here. And it was a, a trumpet that a herald would blow that would get everybody's attention. It wasn't, there's a, there's a deal that goes around on Facebook. And it is sweet. It's sweet for what it is. It's, it's this wife says to her husband, shout to the world that you love me. And she, he whispers in her ear, I love you. And she says, why didn't you shout to the world? And he says, because you are my world. Oh, oh, isn't that sweet? It is, isn't that sweet? That's not what Jesus wants here, though, from us. He wants us to literally trumpet the message, the gospel, the good news, out so everybody can hear it. I, I want it made real plain. If I'm going to interact with you for more than a few minutes, you're going to know that I'm a Christian. Yeah. I, I will do everything in Amen. my power for you to understand that I'm a born-again, blood-bought, spirit-filled believer of God. And, and, and I want you to know it. And I'm not going to and I'm not gonna hang my head when I'm talking about it. Like, I'm a, I'm a Christian. No. No. Look, Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father. If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. I don't know exactly what that means, but I know I'm going to confess him before man. That's what I do know. I know exactly what I'm going to do as a result of that verse. I'm not going to be ashamed of what Jesus has done in my life. Man, Jesus, Jesus transformed my life. My father was a profound alcoholic, but God and my grandfather before him was a profound alcoholic. I've never, ever touched alcohol. Well, I did have a drink when I was three years old. My dad had a beer by his chair, and I did take one sip of that. I, I will confess to that. It was the nastiest stuff I ever tasted. I still can't understand why people drink. I, I was like, what is wrong with you? That stuff's nasty. But, but God, God delivered me from what multiple generations in my family had to go through. I've never had to quit drinking because God helped me never start. I've never taken drugs. I've never been down that road. And I was at a high-risk group because my mom and dad got a divorce. A single mom was raising four boys. We would have been latchkey kids because she was working to keep us alive. And so we had to kind of raise ourselves. And God brought a, a Baptist church that had a bus that came to my house and picked us up for Sunday school. My mom's at work. We pile onto the bus, go to church singing songs about Jesus. And, and, and the, the pastor there and the, the teachers there made a massive impact in my life, and I married the pastor's daughter. Watch out who you invite to church, man. I, it, it, horrible things could happen. But God transformed my life, and I'm cognizant 
of the weakness of my will so that I know had I grown up without the empowering of the Holy Spirit, if you want to see how weak-willed I am, break out a bucket of ice cream around me and you, you'll watch me become a ravenous, hungry dog. I'm, I'm horrible. I, donuts. I don't have willpower, but I do have Jesus. Amen. And I do have the Holy Spirit. And he helped me to say no at significant times in my life that I needed to be able to say no. And so God's done tremendous for me. I, could, I, could I somehow just whisper about the gospel when I should be trumpeting the gospel? I think not. So the second mile evangelism is exemplary, it's evangelistic, and then in a, for a final thought is it's expectant. That's how he gives they, – they were looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. And, yeah. and, and I mean they were looking. They weren't, they weren't just uh, aware that it was going to happen. They expected it to happen, okay? And, and, and that's a powerful thing, and somehow I think the church has lost that. And, and maybe because two millennia have passed – since Jesus Christ ascended up into heaven in Acts chapter 1, and so you go, well, maybe the Lord is slack concerning his promise. Well, Peter says, no, he's not slack concerning his promise. He has, that there, God wants the gospel to reach the most people that it can before he comes back. And so he's patient, he's waiting for the right time, but at some time, another trumpet's going to sound, it's the last trumpet, and Jesus is going to come back, and there's going to be some radical changes that take place. They were waiting for, and not waiting and doing nothing, but waiting and working. They were expected. Now, Paul breaks down their experience in past, present, and future. He says, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They, idols were everywhere, man. Everywhere. Before we went to Jerusalem and Israel and toured there... We went to Athens, Greece, and we climbed up on top of the Acropolis where the Parthenon is. That uh, It overlooks the Athens. And, and you, as you're walking along this road that leads up to the Parthenon, there are these little slots that are, in the, the, that are right by the road. They're about this big. And the guide makes a point of, of pointing those out to you because you wouldn't have noticed it in, just on your own. He said what they believe is that those were the, were the spots where they would take sort of statuary, sort of an almost two-dimensional kind of a statue, a stone of, of Zeus and Apollo and, and all of those, and they would slip them there so they would remind you about that particular god. It was sort of an advertisement for their god. You know, yeah. and so whenever you went to the Parthenon, you could yeah. you, you could remember that you just passed by Zeus, so you could go and you could offer up prayers or sacrifices to Zeus. And so when Paul comes to Mars Hill into the Acropolis, well, what he does is he preaches to him about the unknown God. And he talks to him yeah. about this God you don't have a statue for, this God that you don't know about. And he tells him all about this unknown God. Because these guys, they, they, they're gods. Their gods were depraved. I mean, I was listening to a podcast about, about the mythology of Greece the other day, and uh, Hercules was the product of Zeus fooling around, cheating on his wife, having an affair. So their gods are these adulterous, cheating scoundrels that, that are capricious, will kill people just to kill them. They, they, they're, they're very, they're psychotic. I mean, I, yeah. if you follow the, if you follow the Greek and Roman mythologies, and you go back to the, to the Canaanites and the other, other mythologies, the Babylonians, it's all the same. They create their gods in their own image. Instead, God, Genesis one twenty seven, created us in His image. 
And, and, and so we have a God that's other. So Paul says, I'm talking to you about the unknown God. So these guys, these guys in, in Ephesus, there was, a, there was a temple that was there similar to the Acropolis. And they had temple prostitution as a part of their worship. So the highest aspect of worship in their religious system is this debauchery. And it's just, it's wicked. And so they're fed up with that. They're, the, the culture has, has, has nothing but fed on this false, idolatrous emptiness. And then finally, they, they hear about the unknown God. They, they hear about the God that's other, the God that doesn't commit adultery, the God that's not capricious, the God that's loving, the God that will come and indwell you and live inside of you and take you to heaven where there is fullness of joy when you leave this planet. That changed everything. Amen. So you turned... From idols, and then the second thing, that was their past, and their present, was to the living and true God, the real God, Jehovah God, the great I am God. And then, then to wait for a son from heaven, whom is raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. This word, um, this word that's here, is to wait for a son from heaven. It, it's, there, there's a, it, it's only used here, and there's another word... That, that is used for weight that's translated in the Septuagint, and it has three different images in this parallel word. It's not the exact word, but it's the exact concept. And it was just this idea, the weight that was there was, it was an idea, it's used in the Septuagint of a servant waiting for his wages. Mm -hmm. You wait expectantly when you wait yeah. for your money. I mean, like, like I know when payday is where I work at. You know, I, I'm not confused. I might be confused about other things. I am not confused about payday. And I know that the check goes in at midnight of payday, the, the midnight the payday starts, not at midnight the payday ends. So right. I know the hour that it comes. So I'm waiting for my check because sometimes the month is longer than the money. And so you gotta you gotta do something. So you're you're waiting for the payday. That's the idea. You're waiting for it to happen. Yeah. It was the yeah. idea, it was the idea yeah. of, a, of a servant waiting for that. It was the idea of somebody that had been afflicted with a severe chronic illness or pain waiting for deliverance. Man, you, you guys know, some of you know especially about chronic pain, you know about chronic affliction, chronic illness, something something that won't go away. Waiting for deliverance, waiting for healing, waiting for restoration, waiting for an easing of pain. It was used that way. When you're, when you're waiting at that level, you're waiting with a sense of expectancy. You need something to happen. Your life depends on something happening. Yeah. That's what he's talking about here. Amen. And then and then it had to do Oh man, I lost my place. Oh I, I, I you, you guys have ever heard of uh, of mnemonics? The, the Romans the Romans used what they called a Roman room and how they would how they would memorize what they were going to speak about is they would they would attach the idea or concept that they had and they would put it on a, a place in their house. So in the doorway, they would make an image of something, they would put it there, and they would kind of put it at various places. So this particular point is on my TV screen at my house. And so I don't know how I missed it. I've seen the TV screen in my house plenty of times. I surely should be able to find it, but somehow I missed it. It's this idea of waiting up for somebody. Have you ever, have you ever had your loved one go out of town? Somebody that, I'm talking about somebody you love a lot, not somebody you don't like. Because if somebody you don't like goes away, you're not waiting up for them. You know what I mean? They, they're like, uh, Thank God, Greyhounds, you're gone. You know, that kind of a thing. You know, and you're like, no, I'm sorry, that's wrong. That's wrong. You guys, you guys don't ever feel that way. You're, you're, you're Christian people here. But, but so let's say somebody goes away that you love a lot, and 
and you're waiting. You know they're going to come back at a certain day, but they're not going to get in until late. Now, they don't know exactly when they're going to get in because you got the – my, my family, I've got five that are still home. Now, we have nine kids total, but i got five that are still home. You can't get more than 10 miles without stopping at a rest area. I don't know what happened. I'll ask my kids. Everybody, you've all gone to the bathroom, right? You've all gone, right? Yes, yes, Dad, we've all gone. And you'll get in the road, and you'll get about two miles down the road, and a little hand will come up, a little voice in the back and go, i got to go to the bathroom. You're like, are you kidding me? Really? The people I just passed are going to pass me. This is not possible. What are you doing? So then you stop, and then and then you go look back in the van, and you go, does anybody else have to go? No, 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 we don't have to go. Uh, yeah, okay, I'm up to your little tricks, Mrs. Are We There Yet. Now, you guys are the reason we're not there yet. But, so say so say somebody, they, they don't know when they're going to get in, but you know they're going to get in late. So, but you love them, so you wait up for them. You wait up. You're not waiting to sleep. You wait up. You're looking for him. You, you want you want to see him. You, you're not going to wait till the next morning to say howdy to him. Amen. You're going to howdy him and hug him and, and, and show him where they're going to sleep and all that stuff. You're going to love on him. Yeah. That, that's the, the word that's here is, is you wait up on Jesus. Amen. We've got to get back to that somehow. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, the second coming of Christ isn't just this theological concept that rounds out eschatology nicely. It, it, it's something far deeper than that. And it needs to be far more personal than that. Yeah. And somehow we, we've let that slip. I mean, let me read something yeah. to you. I'm not to read it because I can't I can't tell it properly. He's right on. I went to Bible College in, in Oklahoma, and, uh, and, and just outside of Oklahoma City, it's called Moore, Oklahoma. And and so when this news hit me about this, it kind of hit me hard. But I want to share with you about the Oklahoma City bombing and kind of what's going on there. The the most revered symbol in Oklahoma City. Sacred to many was a tree, a sprawling, shade-bearing, 100-year-old American elm. Tourists drive from miles around to see it. People pose for pictures beneath it. Arborists carefully protected. This seemingly ordinary elm adorns posters and letterhead. Uh, sure, there are other trees that are larger, fuller, greener, but no other tree is equally cherished or more lovingly cared for as is this one. This is the tree that endured the Oklahoma City bombing. On the morning of April 19, 1995, Timothy McVeigh parked his death-laden truck just a few yards away from this tree. His twisted malice killed 168 people, including 19 children under the age of six. Wounded 850, destroyed the Alfred P. Murrow yeah. Federal Building, damaged 324 other buildings within a 16-block radius. The force of the blast of this 4,000-pound bomb blew away one entire side of the tree, stripped the leaves, some of the limbs from what is left. Shards of glass and debris were shot deep into the trunk of this elm. Fire from cars parked beneath it, blackened and scorched. No one expected the tree to survive. It was yet another casualty of despicable terrorism. But then something unexpected happened. The elm began to bud. Sprouts pressed through the damaged bark. Green leaves pushed away the gray soot. Life resurrected from an acre of death. People noticed the tree modeled the resilience of the victims, so they began hanging signs of remembrance on it. They gathered under its branches when McVeigh's guilty verdict was read. And they gave that elm tree a name, the survivor tree. It had taken the full brunt of the explosion, absorbed the fury of stark evil, yet it remained. Saplings from the survivor tree were sent to Columbine High School after the massacre there. From New York City after September 11th, the, the 2001 attacks. At Virginia Tech after the shooting in 2007. Each becoming a tangible symbol of hope, 
that something good and beautiful lies beyond the unthinkable. We have a tree. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's not the survivor tree, it's the Savior tree. And it's our job to take the Savior tree to everybody that will listen. Amen. Because it, it represents eternal life. It represents, it represents transformative change. It saves families. It cures addictions. It, 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 it releases the load of sin and casts them into the sea of God's forgetfulness where he remembers them no more. We have a survivor tree, and it's our job to take it everywhere. Sometimes we say, well, I'm not, I'm not Billy Graham. I'm not an evangelist. Look, it's your job to reach your oikos, your sphere of influence. You, you, have, you have people that will listen to you because of who you are. You have people that I couldn't reach. They, they, they see me and they see a preacher and they instantly shut me off. They, they can't hear what I'm saying. But they respect you. They love you. They'll listen to you. And so you may be the only one that can take a, a piece of that savior tree to them. Let's stand and close our time together here. Wow. Dear Lord God, in just a moment we'll have a, a verse of invitation, just to, or just to imitate, just a time to come. But God, we want to return thanks to you for the work of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. God, Lord, we, we are all undone apart from your son on that cross. Apart from that tree, we can't make it into heaven. You toss that tree into the bitter waters of our experience and transform everything. God, I just pray you'd help us to drink of this water of life fully and freely and help us to take it to everyone around us. We ask this in your name. Amen. Head, just see where your head's about, eyes closed. If you, would, would you just commit with me to share your faith with somebody?